Turn your Bibles or turn them on once again to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. We will begin reading at verse 7 this morning. I'm going to ask you to pray for me as well. I am as tired this week as I have been in ages, uh, it seems. And uh, so, so pray that God will use me today. This is the seventh week in our series on the seven churches. As you can see behind me, <laughs> we are making our way through Asia Minor. We started in the port city of Ephesus, then made our way up to Smyrna. From there we journeyed northeast to the city of Pergamum, stayed there for a short period of time, and then traveled southeast to Thyatira. Last week we continued our southeast trek and came to the city of Sardis. And what an interesting place that was. A church full of dead men's bones. But thank God there were a few faithful believers still left and God made them some great and awesome promises. Today the Holy Spirit has led us to the beautiful city of Philadelphia. Philadelphia was named after its founder, Atalus Philadelphus, king of Pergamum. It is situated about 25 miles south-southeast of Sardis. The city is still in existence today and is called Al-Shahir. It's interesting to note and, and worth repeating that the churches of Philadelphia and Smyrna are the only two churches without rebuke that Christ wrote to in these seven letters that he sent out, and they are the only two cities that have continued since the time of John up till today. I don't think that's a coincidence. There's two churches out of seven that did not receive a rebuke, and only those two cities have continued since the time of John until now. Philadelphia was located in the very fertile Cogmas River Valley. It was an agriculturally prosperous region, uh, but the area was subject to frequent earthquakes. As a matter of fact, in AD 17, the city was nearly destroyed by a severe earthquake. Aftershocks made the city almost uninhabitable for several years. The ancient writer Pliny thought that the earthquake was one of the greatest disasters in human history. Because of the earthquake, Emperor Tiberius relieved the city of Taxus for a period of five years. The survivors rebuilt and the church went on. Today the Christians at Al-Shahir have 25 places that they can choose to go worship. Five of them uh, have large buildings and own property, which is amazing uh, given the area that they are in. So I want you to read with me beginning in verse 7 of Revelation chapter 3. I hope you've enjoyed uh, this series on the seven churches. And we have two more. We have next week the church at Laodicea, which will be the last church. And then that eighth letter, we want to go back and look at all of these uh, at a 30,000 foot view and see what it is that we believe we should take away from these letters as a church ourselves, and how we should be faithful to the commands of God that are written there. So we have a couple more. I don't know if that last sermon I'll actually be able to pull off in one sermon. It may be too 
could possibly be three, uh, but I'm going to try to be kind to you and get it done as fast as I can. Let's read Revelation 3, verse 7. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, right? Philadelphia means brotherly love. Of course, most of you, most of you probably know that. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, right? These are the words of the one who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have a place. I have placed before you an open door, which no one can shut. For you have a little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Look at those who belong to the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, but are liars instead. I will make them come and bow down at your feet, and they will know that I love you. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I will also keep you from the hour of testing that is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God and he will never again leave it. Upon him I will write the name of my God. And the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven from my God, and my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's look at this letter introduction for a moment. To the angel of the church at Philadelphia, right? These are the words of the one who is holy and true. We'll stop there. For just a second. Here Jesus once again affirms his deity as he says of himself, I am holy and true. That statement is altogether unique. No one else has ever been able to say that about themselves. No one. Only Jesus can say that. So we want to break this down just a little bit and see, see what God has to say. Jesus says, first of all, that he is holy. Holy is the Greek adjective hagios. It literally means different or unlike. That speaks of standing out from the world. But the definition continues. To be holy also means to be physically pure, morally blameless, or ceremonially, ceremonially consecrated. These definitions speak perfectly to who Jesus is. He is pure in every way. He stood out from the world. There's no denying that. When he was here, even in his earthly ministry, it was obvious that he was unique, that he was different, that he was unlike everyone else to the point that people were drawn to him to see what made him that way. But he was also physically pure, morally blameless, and ceremonially consecrated for the purpose of God. So that speaks well of Jesus Christ, but this may surprise you. That's also what God's Word commands that every Christian everywhere should be. We read this in 2 Corinthians six seventeen. Therefore, come out from among the world, and be ye separate, be different, be unlike, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing. Be ceremonially consecrated before God, morally pure. Then I will receive you. First Peter 2.9 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, a people 
purchased by God and taken out of the world. We should show forth the praises of Him who hath called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. We are called out, consecrated to be different than the world. That's what we're meant to be. We are to be like Jesus. Jesus is our example. It's amazing to me that people are confused. People who claim to be Christian, who claim to be Christ followers. It's amazing to me that they get confused on the point that we are to act like Christ. I, I think we just give in to the fact that we're in this world. Scripture confirms that we are in this world. And because of that, we struggle with a, with a lot of things that come from being part of this fallen race, this fallen generation, this fallen world. I get that. We struggle with it. God gets that. He talks about it. But we are to be consecrated. We are to be holy as He is holy. The Word of God teaches us. And so we should do everything within our power to look as much like Jesus as we possibly can. And He says of Himself, I am holy. Not only does He say He's holy, Hagios, He also calls Himself true. He is holy and true, alathinos, it means absolutely true, voracious, sincere, the opposite of what is fictitious, counterfeit, imaginary, simulated, or pretended. Jesus is truth. He is truth. He doesn't just tell the truth. He is truth. In John 14, 6, Jesus said of himself, I am the way, I am the truth. And I am the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is truth. When we talk about this, this concept of Jesus being truth, it's, it's very important that we understand the fullness of that statement. Truth is an intrinsic, or some would say an absolute attribute of God. Meaning it's who He is. It's part of who He is. He is truth. But God has both intrinsic and relative attributes. Intrinsic attributes are those things that belong solely to God. It's who and what He is. For example, the Bible tells us in 1 John 4, 8 that God is love. He is love. He doesn't just love. He is love just like He is truth. That's an intrinsic attribute of God. Relative attributes are those that allow God to relate Himself to His creation. So we say that God is love. That is true. But when He relates love to mankind, we experience it as mercy, grace, and compassion. He, he relates Himself to us in ways that we can comprehend and understand. And God is love and that's beyond, beyond what we can comprehend at times. So he demonstrates, he relates himself to us in many different ways. The same thing is said about being true. God is truth. And when he relates truth to his creation, we experience that truth in his dependability, in his reliability, and in his absolute faithfulness. Jesus is altogether trustworthy because He's truth. Hebrews 6.18 tells us that it's impossible for God to lie. Impossible 
It's not that he doesn't do it often. It's just that he's truth and it's impossible for him to lie. The only question left is, do you believe him? Some Christians have a difficult time with believing that God is who he says he is and cares the way he says he does. So I get questions often as a, as a pastor. Pastor Wayne, why does God allow this to happen or allow that to happen? Or why this or why that? And I get, I get the fact that we can't understand the mind of God. And, and Scripture tells us His ways are not my ways and my ways aren't His. And we struggle with Him because He's infinite wisdom and we're finite in ours. And we struggle with it. But... Do you believe, here's the question, do you believe that Jesus will do what he said? If, if he says he will never leave you nor forsake you, do you believe that? Or do you sometimes feel in your heart that he has forsaken you and you have feelings that come along with that? Hard feelings about God. He, he left me when I needed him most. He wasn't there but a God who is holy and true that cannot lie and tells us that He never leaves us nor forsakes us can never leave. He's there. He's with you. He's with you even now. Do you believe Him? Do you believe Him? When He says He loves you, do you believe Him? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. What else does He have to do to prove? That He loves you. He gave His only begotten Son. That whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. He loves you. He is holy and He is true. That's His that's statement of Himself. And He is absolutely accurate in it. Verse 7 goes on to say, These are the words of the one who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no man can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. The key indicates... Now, the governmental authority of David, he is the promised king who will rule from the throne of David. We see this throughout Scripture. Jacob prophesied that a ruler would arise from the tribe of Judah and that he would ascend the throne of David, and that's what Jesus did. Isaiah prophesied that a child with an eternal kingdom would come and rule from David's throne in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7. And he did. Gabriel repeated this promise to Mary at the Annunciation. In Luke 1, 32, he says, He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. Wow. Then lastly, we read that he is actively holding open the door such that no one can shut it. The thought here is that people must respond while the door is held open by God. For once it's shut, there is no recourse for entry. That's quite the introduction in a verse. Isn't it amazing how God can say in a verse what it takes me 12 or 15 minutes to try to convey and I still don't get it done? <laughs> that shouldn't be amazing to you. Um, but what an introduction. Let's look at the body of the letter real quickly. Number one, they obtained the praise of God. The church at Philadelphia had obtained the praise of God. Now, you'll need to let that sink in for a moment. 
Most of us will agree that when we come to the house of God, we come here to worship Him and to praise Him. For He alone is worthy. But let's read these verses. I know your deeds, he says. That's a resounding theme we've seen with every letter. I know your deeds. See, I've placed before you an open door which no one can shut. For you have only a little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Look at those who belong to the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews but are liars instead. I will make them come bow down at your feet. and They will know that I love you. Jesus had given the church at Philadelphia a blessed and favored ministry, specifically that of an open door to the kingdom of God, meaning people were coming to Christ through the evangelistic efforts and the preaching of the gospel that came out of this great church. And all while, in Philadelphia, there were those who claimed to be good Jews but really belonged to the synagogue of Satan that were doing everything within their power to keep people away from this church and the doctrine of Christ. Yet God was still holding the door open for those who would hear the word of truth and would come and be part of the kingdom of God. Jesus goes on to say, you have only a little strength. That's probably a reference to the comparison of the size and sheer number of those who attended the synagogue that Jesus is referencing. The Jews in Philadelphia were meeting in a fine building and the Christians here in Philadelphia were meeting from house to house. They felt small and inferior. But the Bible says they had kept God's word and had not denied His name. And because of that, Jesus was praising them. Imagine that. They meet to worship God and He praises them for their faithfulness. Oh, if that could be said of churches today. Then Jesus said, look at those who belong to the synagogue of Satan. I will make them come and bow down at your feet and they will know that I love you. I love that. So we see this little Christian church meeting door to door from house to house during a time of persecution. And the synagogue was going strong. And, and if you know Scripture at all, you know that the Pharisees need very little prompting in order to feel superior. And no doubt they would look down their nose at these Christians, these Christ followers, these people who believed in a dead Savior as they would have said. But when God looked at them, when Jesus spoke of this church, He, he spoke of them with praise in His voice. You have kept the Word. You have maintained the faith. You have done what I've called you to do. Reminds me of the old song, Does your place of call to labor seem so small and little known? It is great if God is in it, and he'll not forsake his own. Little is much when God is in it. Labor not for wealth or fame. There's a crown, and you can win it if you go in Jesus' name. Wow. They obtained the praise of God. 
Notice, secondly, they owned the promises of God. Verse 10, Jesus said, Because you have kept my command to persevere, I will also keep you from the hour of testing that is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. I love that. Here we have a major shift in thought. Jesus goes from the present day first century church at Philadelphia to the future church at Philadelphia, which still exists, as, as we said earlier. Christians in Al-Shahir are still worshiping God and persevering in a hostile environment. In the introduction, I told you that the Christians in Al-Shahir have 25 places of worship that they can choose from on any given day to worship God, five of which have buildings and own property but compare that to the 45 mosques that cover the landscape and you'll get some idea of what Jesus was speaking of when he said, you have persevered. You have persevered. You've kept my command. You've been faithful. And you have persevered. And because of that, I will also keep you from the hour of testing that is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. The hour of testing that will come upon the whole world is a reference to the time of tribulation that will follow the return of Jesus Christ for His church to take us away to be with Him. There is considerable debate as to the timing of these eschatological events and when they will take place. Some think that the church will indeed go through part or all of what the Bible calls tribulation and great tribulation, while others interpret the Bible to mean that the church will be called up by Christ and taken out of the world prior to this period of time. When we come to these verses, the debate typically centers around one word, the word from, from. I will also keep you from the hour of testing that is about to come. The Greek word translated from is the little word ek. Transliteration is just two letters, E-K, ek. The meaning seems to be clear enough. The word ek means out of or from or away from. That definition in and of itself offers a great deal of understanding, yet the debate continues on whether or not from means out of or through, as some would say. So real quickly, there are some people that believe the church will go through the tribulation period that will take place on earth prior to Christ returning to set up His millennial kingdom, His eternal kingdom. That's their thought, and, and they have a few verses that they can turn to, but others, myself included, believe that Scripture is clear about the fact that Christ will return for His church prior to the time of tribulation and will take the church out or away from away from the earth before the wrath of God is poured out upon all earth. And, and on that thought, there's been a great deal of debate. Let me point out something that I think can help the debate some. I think if we stop on the word from, and that happens a lot, then we have some issues, we have problems. But if we continue to read... Scripture has an amazing way of clearing itself up. As a matter of fact, Scripture tells us that it interprets itself. 
So if we continue to read, hold fast to what you have so that no one... Sorry, I'm, let me back up. I, am, I will always keep... I will also keep you from the hour of testing that is about to come upon the whole world. I will also keep you from the hour of testing that is about to come. If we continue to read, it's, it's, it's not the word from that we really need to focus on. It's, it's what God is saving us from that really matters. There's a lot of people, hear me when I say this, there's a lot of great theologians far, far wiser than I am far more educated, far more studied than I am that disagree with what I'm about to say. There's many that agree with the stance that I take, but I think too many get stopped on that one word from. That is the word of debate. When If we just continue to read, I will also keep you from the hour. It's, it's what he's saving us from that matters. And so, so what does the Bible say? What is he keeping us from? And we've got to be careful here even as well. I will also keep you from the hour of testing that is about to come. Is he keeping us from the testing or is he keeping us from the hour of testing? Scripture's very clear when we read that. The word hour denotes a period of time, a moment. And, and, and Jesus is saying, I will keep you from the hour of testing that is about to come. The hour of testing. The church will never experience the testing because it will never experience the moment, the hour of the testing. So according to this verse of Scripture, God delivers us from this testing, this wrath that is to come and poured out upon the earth because, because He delivers us from the hour of the testing. We're delivered from this. We're delivered from the hour of testing. That's what's so important here to take note of. The beautiful thing is that God indeed will send an hour of testing upon the earth. You can mark that down. It's going to take place. But God has made provisions for His children to come and take us out of the world prior to the hour of testing that will come to take us to be with Him. And when we come back to Revelation, we do a verse-by-verse study, we'll be able to go a lot more in this than what I'm able to do so today. But thanks be to God that Christ will one day come and receive His church unto Himself, and we will be with Him. And I would love to be able to go into that some. I want to. But when the tribulation period takes place here on the earth, which will start at the rapture of the church, when Christ calls His church out, the wrath of God is going to be poured out upon the earth, and His children will be in the heavenlies with Him. A couple of things are going to take place. The judgment seat of Christ will stand to be judged, to give an account for the things we've done in this life, whether good or bad. That's the judgment seat of Christ where every Christian will stand. And then after that, the marriage supper of the Lamb, that great reception, incredible time that will take place in heaven. At the same time, tribulation is taking place on earth, and then we'll come back.
so much to talk about in the book of Revelation. But here Jesus makes the promise, I will keep you from, because of your faithfulness, because you have persevered, I will keep you from the hour of testing that is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. What a promise. What a promise. And you can take that to the bank because the one who makes the promise is, as we've just learned, holy and true. He cannot lie. So, so we've seen that they obtained the praise of God. They owned the promises of God. Notice thirdly, the offered prize of God. The second part of verse 11 says, Hold fast to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Hold fast, hold fast. Jesus commands the faithful believers at Philadelphia to hold fast to what they have. That little phrase, hold fast, is a singular Greek word krateo that means to hold fast not discard or let go don't let go and it's a present tense imperative meaning to continually hold fast keep doing what you're doing and do it faithfully that's the command of Jesus Christ so that no one takes your crown the Philadelphians were promised a prize for their faithful service someone once once said, and rightfully so, God is no man's debtor. I love that thought. When we're faithful to Him, God goes far beyond our faithfulness to reward us because He loves His children. You will remember that God promised to the overcomers at Smyrna the crown of life. It was the martyr's crown. We don't have a specific crown mentioned here at Philadelphia, but suffice it to say, whatever it is, it will be an honor to receive from Jesus Christ and then have the opportunity to cast it at His feet. The offered prize of God. Let's look at these last verses in conclusion. The one who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God and He will never again leave it. That's probably the greatest promise that we have to all the overcomers in all the letters. This magnificent letter that Jesus sent to the church at Philadelphia. He's promised to the faithful followers of Christ that they will be with Him forever. That they will never be separated again, ever, ever. Listen, there's something to be said about being a faithful follower of Christ. And I'm not talking about just claiming Him as Savior or claiming a particular church as your home church or your faith family. I'm, I'm talking about living a life that is committed to Christ. Faithfully serving Him and following His commands. And, and, and starting with reading your Bible. Let me encourage you today to read the Word of God. You can say what you will about your relationship with God, but if you're not regularly reading your Bible, your relationship with God is not what He desires it to be. There's three things that you have to do to have a right relationship with God. You must pray. Then you must read your Bible. And then you must follow the commands that's written in there. 
If you're not doing those three things, you don't have a right relationship with God. And we, we, we want to fool ourselves in church life to think that if we just go to church on Sunday morning and we put up with that preacher for 45 minutes, it's 25 really, don't say 45, 25 minutes. If we do that, then we're okay. But that's not the truth. Don't ever, don't ever think that you're all right just because you and I text two or three times a week. That doesn't fix anything. I, I'm not your Savior. I'm the one who's trying to point you to the Savior. I'm the one who's trying to tell you about Him. You need to have your own relationship with Jesus Christ. And God wants to do so much in you and through you, and He wants to be there for you. But we have to put forth an effort to show Him that He's loved and cared for. And when we read God's Word, and when we get on our knees, and we pray to Him, and we follow His commands... And God fulfills our lives. What a promise. I will make you a pillar in the temple of my God. And you will never again leave it. For those who overcome, you're going to always be with me in my presence. I love that. I love that. Upon him, I will write the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. The written name indicates character and ownership. It always has. These will be owned by God and molded according to his character. They are sons of God. In the tribulation, the 144,000 Jews have the Father's name written on their foreheads, which identifies whose they are and provides for their protection. But here, this reference is to the name that's recorded on all the redeemed in the eternal state. In Revelation 22, 4, we read, They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. I don't know what that is going to look like. My mind can't... I've got a pea brain. Y'all know that. I can't fathom a lot of this stuff. But I know what the Word of God says, and I believe it. And He says, I'm going to write a upon them that overcome the name of my God and the name of the city of my God. New Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven from my God. Jerusalem will have a new name during the millennium that we will associate with. We get an idea of this in the Old Testament. Ezekiel 48 verse 35 tells us, All the way around shall be 18,000 cubits as he describes this new Jerusalem, and the name of the city from that day shall be, the Lord is there. Wow, what a great name. The Lord is there. And then Jesus himself will have a new name. This new name, which more than likely denotes a yet 
unrevealed aspect of the character of Jesus Christ as we're getting glimpses of his character with every letter. A new glimpse. This new name will obviously represent some unrevealed aspect of his character that we won't realize until we see him face to face. God loves changing people's names. Have you ever noticed that? All throughout Scripture we have it. Abram was changed to Abraham. Oh, Simon was changed to Peter. Saul changed to Paul. You ever thought about the name he's going to give you? Caroline's up in the media booth. I've given her a few names. <laughs> not bad. Not bad. You, your minds always go to the worst places. You guys need to be saved again. Just kidding. I call her Flossie Dean all the time. I met a Flossie Dean one time years ago. I don't know where. I can't remember. But, but God has a new name for us. I don't know what it'll say. Maybe it'll just say, he's mine. I'll be all right with that. Get rid of Wayne. My mother, <clears throat> for those of you that, that don't know, my name's Timothy Wayne Chastine. Sometimes I say I get a laugh every once in a while. People pick up on that. Timothy Wayne. My, it's my mom's cruel joke to make me go by my middle name so that everything legal that I do is a disaster. Timothy Wayne. Wayne means wagon wheel maker or something. There's no thought went into that at all. It's like a wagon wheel maker. But, but one day God's going to give me a name that, that describes me the way he, he sees me. I don't know what that'll be. I don't want you guys to do that. Big, fat, ugly preacher, that's not a name. That's not nice. That's not nice. Don't do that. But God will someday name me something. And can you imagine? Can you imagine? I don't I, our minds can't comprehend. When, when Jesus looks at me and he says, Your name is Wayne. He'll probably laugh and say, Well, it's really Timothy Wayne, but we'll, but I'm going to change your name too. And whatever he speaks, I don't know what it's going to be, but I, I, I think that our, our hearts will just melt into him because it will be something that describes us so perfectly and in our entirety that we will sense in that moment that we have been known fully by him on.